Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to cover verses 15 through 29. We're going to entitle this section of Scripture, The Preeminence of Christ. Our context is this, in the first 14 verses of Colossians 1, Paul said the gospel was bearing fruit. He said the Philippians were bearing fruit. They were lights of the gospel. They had an inheritance on light and so forth and some other general moral exhortations and spiritual exhortations to the Colossians. We start now in verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, this begins a section of Christology. This is a lot of Christology in this last half of chapter 1 of Colossians. So we're going to be talking about Jesus a lot, who he is. First of all, he's the image of the invisible God. Here's another scripture that says the same thing, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Hebrews 1, 3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, notice in Hebrews, it said that Jesus is the quote-unquote exact expression of his nature. Image means that. It means, an ex- it means you're looking at an exact likeness. There's a distinction between likeness and, and image. In fact, there's two different Greek words for that. Now, I'm going to read you Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown's distinction between the two. Quote, image involves likeness, but likeness does not involve image. Image always supposes a prototype which it not merely resembles, but from which it is drawn, the exact counterpart, as the reflection of the sun and the water, the child, the living image of the parent. Likeness implies mere resemblance, not the exact counterpart and derivation as image expresses. Hence, it is nowhere applied to the sun, while image is here. And he gives a lot of scriptures talking about the image of God. So... Jesus is not merely in the likeness of God. He is in the image of God. He is the exact expression of his nature. God is invisible. You want to see God, look at Jesus. That's why Jesus came down here, so we would have an idea of what God was like. And so that means it behooves us strongly to study Jesus' life and words and to learn about Jesus because he will then reflect the exact image of of God whom we cannot see. Jesus is also said at the end of verse 15 to be the firstborn over all creation. Now what does that mean? Does that mean that Jesus was a created God? He was the firstborn of God's of the gods that God created? Of course not. Absolutely not. This is the heirs of the Arians and the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Arians back in the 4th century AD that led to the Nicene Council. Here's what Adam Clark says about this idea that Jesus was a created God. If it be said that God created him first and that he, by a delegated power from God, created all things, in other words, God creates Jesus and then Jesus creates the world, that is most flatly contradicted by the apostles' reasoning in the 16th and 17th verses, which I will peek ahead and read now. Verse 16, for everything was created by him. A creature cannot create all things. For everything was created by him. Because if he was a creature, he would have to create himself, and nobody creates himself. Verse 17, he is before all things. One who is before all things cannot be created. So if you want to get a Jehovah's Witness refuted very quickly, just take them to Colossians 1, 16 through 17, end of story. 
Jesus is not a created God. He is divine. He is eternal. He is co-eternal with God the Father. He is equally divine, as is God the Father. So what does it mean, he's the firstborn over all creation? Well, firstborn means that he's the heir of all things, because the heir was the firstborn son back then, and the heir had certain privileges in the ancient world, as the NIV Study Bible says. So likewise, Jesus has rights in relation to all creation. He's the firstborn over all creation. He has priority over everything in, crea in creation, as well as in redemption. Paul talks about creation here in verses 15, 16, and 17. Later on at the end of the chapter, we're going to see that Jesus has priority in redemption. He's the firstborn in redemption, 18, 19, and 20. Jesus has preeminence in the creation and in redemption. He has sovereignty in creation and redemption. So he's the firstborn. He has more rights than anybody else. It does not mean he was a created God or a junior God or a demigod. Colossians 1.16, For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. This is similar to John chapter 1, verse 3. All things were created through him, and apart from him not one thing was created that has been created. So Jesus is the creator, just like God the Father, God the Son is the creator. Everything was created by him. Four things are asserted in verses 16 and 17, which I haven't read 17 yet. Adam Clark says, number one, Jesus is the creator of all. Number two, Jesus created everything for himself and no one else. How do we know that? Because all things were created for him. Verse 16, all things have been created through him and for him. He's the object, the purpose for everything which, which was created. Jesus was prior to all creation because it says in verse 17, he was before all things. And fourth thing that we can say about Jesus is that Jesus preserves all things. He holds all things together, as we'll see later on in the verses as we go through. Now, everything was created by him in heaven and on earth. What are things created by Jesus in heaven? Well, it could be, remember, heaven can be the sky, first heaven, outer space, second heaven, the place where God lives, the spiritual heaven, that's the third heaven. Well, if it's where God lives, the only people that he could create up there, of course, the only entities that he could create up there were angels. Obviously, Jesus is not going to create God the Father. So they could refer to angels. Or if the heavens refers to the sky and outer space, that could refer to birds. If it's the first heaven, the sky and outer space, it could refer to the planets and the stars, etc. So everything in heaven was created. So let's just say angels, bird. Let's start with the highest heaven, third heaven, angels, then we go to outer space, planets, then we go to the sky, birds, in heaven and on earth, well, we know what everything on earth is, the visible and the invisible, that would, the invisible would refer to angels, and I guess there are physical things that are invisible too, air, for example, it just means to cover everything, he, he's the author of everything, he created everything, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, the options for that, Angels, and I think that's what it refers to. Then I read the study Bible suggests, and John Gill affirms it's referring to angels. Now, one contextual reason we can say that is because angels figured prominently in the Colossian heresy. Those terms are used to describe angelic hierarchies through which believers ascended. Thrones and dominions, rulers and authorities. Remember the Gnostics back then, they had levels, there's usually seven levels and each level was guarded by an angel and you had to have the gnosis the secret password before one angel would let you up to the next angel before you got to the demiurge the creator at the very top of the hierarchy 
So Paul is saying, hey, you want to talk about your angel? Let me tell you something. God created every angel that ever existed on earth. Thrones, dominions, or rulers, or authorities. Now, some people have suggested that thrones refers to civil magistrates. I don't think so. Rulers and authorities. I mean, it sounds like it, but I don't think that's what Paul's referring to here. I think he's referring to angels because of he's dealing with this Colossian heresy. Now, all things have been created through him. That means Jesus is the agent. All things have been created for him. That means Jesus is the object of everything. He is preeminent. He is Lord. We go down to Colossians 1.17. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. As I said before, which Jesus is before all things. That knocks out the Arian heresy and the Jehovah's Witness heresy because Jesus was before the creation. So he was not part of creation. So if you start believing in a created junior God like the Jehovah's, like the JWs do, then you have just completely denied this verse. He is before all things. Before all things how? Before all things in time, or he's before all things in dignity, or see both. He's earlier than in time, and he's higher than in dignity, everything. There's nobody higher than Jesus, and there was nobody before Jesus. And by him all things hold together. Well, first of all, before we go to there, let's look at this idea about Jesus being before all things. We see this in other scriptures in the book of John. John 1, verses 1 through 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, before all things, as Paul says in Colossians. John 8, 58. Jesus said to them, I assure you, before Abraham was, I am. He just existed. Now, he says, by him, by Jesus, all things hold together. Not only does Jesus create, he preserves. I'm going to give you a quote from John Gill on how Jesus preserves. Quote, the heavens have their stability and continuance from him. The pillars of the earth are borne up by him. Otherwise, that and the inhabitants of it would be dissolved. The angels in heaven are confirmed in their estate by him and have their standing in security in him. The elect of God are in his hands and are, and are his peculiar care in charge, and therefore shall never perish. Yea, all mankind live and move and have their being in him. The whole frame of nature would burst asunder and break in pieces, was it not held together by him. Every created being has its support from him and its consistence in him. And all the affairs of providence relating to all creatures are governed, directed, and managed by him in conjunction with the Father and the Blessed Spirit. Whew. In other words, all things hold together in Jesus. Here's another related scripture, Romans 11:36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So Jesus is the source of all from him. And Jesus is the agent of all through him. And Jesus is the object of all to him are all things. In other words, there ain't nothing important in this world besides Jesus. Colossians 1:18. He is also head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. Now, in the previous two verses, Paul's talking of Jesus in his divine nature. Now, he's talking of Jesus in his human nature, because he's talking about the head of the church was composed of humans. Jameson Fawcett Brown says, concerning this, quote, The church is his body by virtue of his entering into communion corporeally with human nature. In other words, Jesus became human, and so now he can now become our head. I've never have really thought about that before. I always think of Jesus as the head and his, and his divine nature, but as a human nature, he was especially, could especially be, see, be the head of the church. Now the church is called the body. This is a common metaphor 
1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 14, For as the body is one, and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many are one body, so also is Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body. Verse 14, So the body is not one part, but many. So it's a great metaphor. It's used by Paul in other places. Christ is the head. We're the body. The church is the body. He, Christ, is the beginning. What's the beginning of what? Well, it could be the beginning of the new creation he's the head of the church or it could be refer to the fact that he was with God from the very beginning from before time started so it says he's the beginning means he's eternal or it could be he is the beginning of the physical creation because he created the heavens and the earth not sure what Paul meant here he's t- he just finished talking about being the head of the body of the church so you, it makes you one think that he might be talking about the head of the new creation the church but he's also the head of the physical creation the physical world as well as people in general so it's hard to say what paul's talking about here but all are true he's out of the physical creation he's out of the new creation the church and he's also been in existence from eternity he's the firstborn from the dead now we need to distinguish that firstborn from the dead from the firstborn of all creation which we read about in verse 15 in verse 15 jesus being the firstborn of all creation means that he was preeminent in right as the heir of all things. In other words, he was the heir from the Father. So he had prior glory and rights and prerogatives. But here, the word firstborn is used this way, the firstborn from the dead. So that means the first who was physically resurrected. Now we have to be careful when we say physically resurrection physically resurrected he was the first one to rise from the dead with a resurrection body a glorified body as the end of a study bible and john gill point out there were other people who were resuscitated people such as lazarus mary and martha's sisters at, uh, uh, brother at bethany the widow of nain's son was risen from the dead by jesus but they died again lazarus died again so they didn't get resurrected to their final state, their glorified state. Only Jesus did. So he's the first to do that. So he's the firstborn from the dead. So that he might come to have first place in everything. That means he will be ahead of all the creation. He will be head of the church in everything. He'll be head of all people. He'll be ahead of all angels, all men. I just said people, okay. All people, all angels. As John Gill puts it, quote, In all things he is the first, and has the precedence and primacy. In sonship no one is a son in the sense he is. In election he was chosen first, and his people in him. In the covenant he is the surety, mediator, and messenger of it. He is that itself. In his human nature he is fairer than the children of men. In redemption he was alone, and wrought it out himself. In life he exceeded all others in purity, in doctrine, in miracle, and miracles, and in dying he conquered death and rose first from it. In short, he died, revived, and rose again that he might be Lord both of dead and living. And he ought to have the preeminence and first place in the affections of our hearts, in the contemplations of our minds, in the desires of our souls, and in the highest praises of our lips. First place in everything. Nobody says it better than John Gill. Colossians 1.19, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Now that word fullness is part of technical vocabulary that some Gnostic philosophies use. And remember, Paul is, is preaching against Gnostic philosophy in the whole book of Colossians. And so that might be why he used that 
technical term, fullness. The Gnostics used it to mean, to mean that the sum of the supernatural forces controlling the fate of people, you put all those forces together and that's the fullness of supernatural power. It all belonged to angels, but Paul says, no, it belongs to God with all his powers and attributes. That's where all the fullness dwells. Well, if you say all the fullness of God dwells in Jesus, that's the same thing as saying that Jesus is fully God as well as fully man. Colossians 2.9 says this, For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. In other words, Jesus was God. Now, you would think that verses like this would beat all the pieces, all those canonic theories that denigrate Christ's divinity, and they say, well, Jesus gave up his divinity when he emptied himself and came, became the, in the form of a bondservant, he emptied himself of his divinity, so he was no longer divine. Nonsense. Absolute nonsense. Well, not only nonsense, it's heresy of the worst sort. Because God was pleased to have all of Jesus's, of, of his, God's fullness dwell in him, in Jesus. All of God's fullness, God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. We go to verse 20, Colossians 1. And through him to reconcile it's in the middle of a sentence, so let me read verse 19 again. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him, God was pleased through him, through Jesus, to reconcile everything to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Well, the first thing we've got to point out is that when Paul says that God is going to reconcile everything to himself, it doesn't mean that everyone is going to be saved. That would contradict the contradict a bucket load of scriptures elsewhere and we're not going to get into all that universal salvation is absolute nonsense but what does it mean well it refers to two things first of all the disharmony between man and god will be restored as the nav study bible says reconciles everything that means god will no longer be our enemy he will no longer be hostile to us and we will no longer be hostile to him we will be reconciled also the physical creation will no longer be corrupted. It will be reconciled to God because it will become perfect. Romans 8.21, that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of corruption into the glorious freedom of God's children. So, Christians, the elect, as well as the physical earth, will no longer be an enmity with God because we'll be reconciled to Him. Now, let me read you some learned statements about this reconciliation business. John Gill says, Reconciliation supposes that there was a previous time of amity and harmony, which, as a matter of fact, existed before the fall. Because if you reconcile somebody, that means they used to be friends, then they became enemies, and then you, well, it implies it anyway, then you bring them back together. This is not a reconciliation of God to man, as John Gill says. Scripture never speaks of this. God doesn't need to be brought to man. Man needs to be brought to God for reconciliation. So it's a reconciliation of men to God, not of God to men. It is not a reconciliation to God's love, but it's justice. Why? Because God always loves us. We can't say that he, he stopped loving us, and so now he's reconciled to us, so he loves us now. No, he always loves us, but his justice prevents us from having anything to do with him while we're sinners because he's holy and we're nasty, rotten worms, wretches. So he reconciles us through his justice, which he satisfied by Jesus' blood atonement on the cross. It is a potential reconciliation to be consummated at the end, as my NIV study Bible says. Quote, this is John, uh, Adam Clark's quote. The world of earth and heaven owe to Christ alone the restoration of harmony after the conflict and the subjugation of all things under one head. Yes, that's what we need, harmony, because everywhere earth is red with tooth and claw. P 
people fighting each other, families fighting each other, everybody's fighting each other, sports teams play together, next thing you know, they're fighting each other. Everything's going to be reconciled in Christ. After after a lot of conflict with our enemy, Satan, once that conflict is over, there'll be peace and harmony. Now, everything is reconciled through the blood of his cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Well, things in heaven could refer to the heavenly bodies of the physical creation, in other words, stars and planets. It could be the second heaven. It could be the elect Christians in heaven. That's the third heaven. It could be angels in the third heaven, in the spiritual heaven, if you will. They can't be reconciled to God, but they could be reconciled to the rest of creation, which fell. And so now we can be one with the angels, too. It can't be fallen angels, though. It can't be demons, because they can't be reconciled. That's it for them. It could refer to the Old, the Old Testament saints who are in heaven all, already. So we could be reconciled with them. Everything on earth are things in heaven. So those are the options of things in heaven. How about the things on earth? Well, it could be the planet earth, the physical creation. All of that's going to be reconciled with God. It could be human beings on earth. It could be reconciled to God. Now, all of this is speculation. Adam Clark's got an interesting quote. He says this, Much has been said on this very obscure clause. Things on earth and things in heaven are going to be reconciled. But, as it is my object not to write dissertations but notes, I shall not introduce the opinions of learned men which have as much ingenuity as variety to recommend them. In other words, nobody's really quite sure what that means, but we just know it's all going to come out in the end, and we're all going to be living in peace and harmony with God. Colossians 1, verse 21 through 22. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds because of your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. You were alienated. Ephesians 2.12 backs that up. At that time, you were without the Messiah, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, talking about the Gentiles, and foreigners to the covenants of promise. You're foreign, you're an alien. You come from outer space, you're an alien. You come from outside the country, you're an alien. When I was in China, I was an alien. I was a foreigner. And likewise, the Gentiles were foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. It says that you Gentiles were hostile, or you Colossians, were hostile in your minds. That means you were the enemy of God in your minds. You considered God as your enemy. Romans 5:10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. We were enemies, and now we're reconciled. Of course, what Paul is talking about here is reconciling. He's going to reconcile all things, whether in heaven or on earth. So Romans 5:10 says we're enemies. Colossians 1 21 says we're hostile to God. Verse 22, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body. That means when he died on the cross, that took away our sins, and that means that we're now reconciled with the Father. So that's how he reconciled us, by dying on the cross. By putting his physical, by allowing his physical body to be put on the cross and nailed up there and stabbed with a sphere so the blood ran out and all that. That's how he reconciled us. And the object of his reconciliation was to present us holy, faultless, and blameless before him. Holy means separated from the world, dedicated to God, faultless and blameless. We go now to Galatians 1.23. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So what happens if the condition is met that you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith? Well, you'll be presented holy, faultless, and blameless before him, as in verse 22. But if you don't do that, you don't remain grounded and steadfast, and you become shifted away from the hope of the gospel, what does that mean to be shifted away? Does it mean to lose 
their salvation. The Colossians would lose their salvation. Well, we know from other scriptures that's not possible. Nothing can pluck you from the hand of Christ and so forth. It could mean they could lose their temporal peace and security. You listen to the false teachers of the heretics, then you won't be presented holy and faultless and blameless for Christ. You'll still be his son, but you're going to come up there full of sin, full of error, and God's going to have to burn it out of you. doesn't mean you won't be saved, but you will be chastised. Paul warns the Colossians not to be shifted away from the hope of the gospel. Hope is eternal life and happiness. It's a confident expectation of the future. It is not a mere wish. So that's what you hear when you hear the gospel. It's You are going to have eternal life. End of story. It's not going to be taken away from you. So be confident. You will be not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. How did the Colossians hear the gospel? From Epaphras, their, evangel- their apostle. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And I, Paul, have become a servant of it. All creation under heaven. What could that mean? Every individual creature that was or had been in the world, well, that can't be true, as John Gill points out, because that's obviously not true. Because there were people in China, for example, who didn't hear that Paul only operated in the Roman Empire. So when he says all creation under heaven, he can't mean every human being. It could mean he has preached to all places in the world, i.e. all places in the Roman Empire, which he did. He was everywhere in the Roman Empire. And it's not only him. He says this gospel has been proclaimed. That would include other preachers, too. And so other people are preaching all over the Roman Empire. And I think that makes sense. Here's another option. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation to all creatures. That means every human without distinction of Jew or Gentile. So it's been proclaimed in all creation. So that means we, Paul says we've been preaching to the Jews. We've been preaching to the Gentiles. I tend to think that's what Paul's talking about. Adam Clark backs that up. John Gill and Adam Clark both suggest that this is an option. Adam Clark says that the phrase all creation is a Hebrewism for the whole human race. All creation, Jew and Gentile, whole human race. I think that's probably what it is. And I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Let me give you a couple of scriptures talking about how the gospel had been preached to the whole creation. Mark 16:15. Then he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to the whole creation. Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared with salvation for all people. Now that all people, of course, can't mean every individual because not everybody gets saved, but it means all kinds of people, Jews as well as Gentiles. I suspect that Paul is talking about this gospel being proclaimed in all creation. He means he wants to, him, he's trying to get across to the Colossians the idea that the orthodox gospel that he preaches has been everywhere believed, and this heresy that you're dabbling with, this Gnostic Colossian heresy that you're dealing with has not been proclaimed in all creation, and it's a lie. That's what he's getting at. And I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Remember, Paul said he's an apostle of Jesus Christ in the first verse, so he's pulling rank on him. Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's affliction for his body, that is the church. Paul is, says he rejoice, rejoices in his sufferings. He might be in jail, but the gospel had taken root, and it had grown. It had gone. There were churches, and all, the gospel's going in all creation. The gospel even got out to the Praetorian Guard, and in Caesar's household, as we read in Philippians and Ephesians. Churches are now being planted all over the world. So that's what he was happy. He wasn't, I'm sure he wasn't happy about being under house arrest, but he was happy about the progress of the gospel. I rejoice in my sufferings for you. Now, Paul had suffered all sorts of things. Let's read 2 Corinthians 11:23 23 through 27. 
Paul says this, Are they servants of Christ? I'm talking like a madman. I'm a better one with far more labors, many more imprisonments, far worse beatings, many times near death. Five times I received the forty lashes minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I have spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, and dangers among false brothers. Toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold, cold and without clothing. Now, folks, that's some suffering. But Paul says he rejoices in those sufferings, and he had a lot of them. But he says, and more particularly, I rejoice in my sufferings for you, for you Colossians. Now, the first question that arose in my mind when I noticed that is, how had Paul suffered in particular for the Corinthian church? Excuse me, for the Colossian church. Upon asking myself that question, I inquired of Albert Barnes, the commentator, and he had the answer, I think. Quote, Paul has suffered quote, for you as a part of the Gentile world. It, it was not for the Colossians alone, but he regarded himself as suffering on account of his labors and preaching to the pagan at large. His trials at Rome had come upon him because he had maintained that the wall of partition between Jews and Gentiles was broken down and that the gospel was to pre be preached indiscriminately to all mankind. So what Barnes is saying is Paul had the temerity to go preach to the Gentiles. The Jews didn't like that. Of course, they had riots in Jerusalem over it. They carried him in front of the Roman magistrates all the time over it. And Paul was constantly suffering because of the Jews. In fact, he was in jail now because of what the Jews had done in Jerusalem. Got the Romans to arrest him. He was in, Paul was in prison at Caesarea for two years, and now he's in prison in Rome. Why? Because of the Jews? Because... And why and and the Jews did that because Paul says, Hey, I'm gonna to preach to the Gentiles too, and the Jews didn't like that. So that's why Paul says he was suffering for you, because you Colossians are Gentiles and I suffered for you. But I'm happy for it. He's not trying to make them feel guilty. And I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's affliction for his body, that is the church. There's that body metaphor again. I am completing in my flesh. Well now, that doesn't mean that Jesus is Suffering in his flesh was not sufficient to atone for our sin, as the NIV study Bible says. Of course not. Christ suffered completely to atone for sin, but now Paul completed that suffering because he was suffering to get the gospel out to the world. So Jesus suffered to atone for sin, and Paul suffered to spread the gospel. He didn't suffer to atone for sin, of course. This is contrary to Catholicism, which states that the church has a stock treasury of merits, and those merits come from the merits and sufferings of Christ and his apostles. So Jesus suffered, put some merits in the treasury, the apostles suffered and put some merits in the treasury, and we human beings can draw on that treasury, which is a bunch of poppycock, in my humble Protestant opinion. We go now to Colossians 1, verses 25 and 26. I have become its servant, its being the church that he mentioned in 24, the body of Christ. I have become the church's servant, according to God's administration that was given to me for you to make God's message fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. What does administration mean? Clark translates it as the gospel economy. Jameson Fawcett and Brown translate it as stewardship, according to God's stewardship. In other words, Paul's responsible for the operation of the church here on earth. He uses that word again in another place in Ephesians 1.10 for the administration of the days of fulfillment 
to bring everything together in the Messiah, the administration of the days of fulfillment. In other words, the Messianic age, the church of the Messianic age, it has to be administered. Paul's doing that. He's carrying out his responsibilities. That administration was given to Paul for you. Jameson Fawcett and Brown say the you doesn't refer necessarily just to the Colossians, but to the Gentiles. Now, I can't believe there weren't Jews in the Colossian church because there were Jews everywhere in the Roman Empire. But the main point of address, the main group of people that were being addressed in Colossae were the Gentiles, as the commentators all say, and I think there's no question. So for you Gentiles or you Colossians, I have become the servant of the church in order to make God's message fully known. That fully known reminds one of Romans 15:19. By the power of miraculous signs and wonders and by the power of God's Spirit, as a result, I have fully proclaimed the good news about the Messiah from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. Illyricum's on the west end of Macedonia, probably referring to his third journey when Paul went through Macedonia all the way to Illyricum through there on his way down to Corinth. And so Paul is fully proclaimed. That means he has gone everywhere, all over the place, proclaiming Jesus over over 10 years, over a decade of his life, more than 10 years, more like 12, 13, maybe 14 years. So the message was fully known. So in other words, it's fully known in extent, but it's also f- geographical extent, but it's also the message is made fully known in, in, in relation to its content. Everything that you need to know for salvation, you know. So it, you fully know everything that God meant for you to know about salvation. And he refers to God's message in verse 26 as the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. Well, mystery is a word that was used by the mystery religions back then, and it meant esoteric knowledge that nobody had except the initiated into the cult. Paul doesn't use it that way. He says, no, Christian mystery is mystery that was hidden before, not understood, but has been revealed. The NIV Study Bible quotes, the definition of mystery is this, the purpose of God unknown to man except by revelation. Now, the term is used of the gospel, it's used of the fact that Jews and Gentiles would be one in in one body together. It's used to refer to the incarnation. It's refused to it's used to refer to the resurrection. It's used to refer to Christ in you. The hope of glory is a mystery. So it's used a lot. Paul uses it all the time. Now the interesting thing about that word mystery, even as the pagan religions tried to cover up their esoteric knowledge, Jesus tries to reveal the knowledge of salvation. Because Paul says right here, it was hidden for ages and generations. That's during the Old Testament era. We didn't know about Jesus yet. But now it is now revealed to his saints. So the mystery is revealed. So when you think mystery, think revelation at the same time. Other scriptures that point that out, three others, Ephesians 1, 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will. He made known to us the mystery of his will. He revealed it to us. Romans 16:25. Now to him who has power to strengthen you according to my gospel and the proclamation about Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, kept silent for long ages, a revelation of the mystery. Ephesians 3, 3. The mystery was made known to me by revelation. As I have briefly written about, drop down to verse 5. This was not made known to people in other generations. It is now revealed to his Holy Spirit apostles and prophets by the spirit so you see revelation is connected with making known excuse me mystery is connected with revelation and making known in ephesians and romans ephesians 1 ephesians 3 and romans 16 so that just shows what privilege we have to have this knowledge to have this salvation knowledge 
given to us, even though it's been hidden forever. It is a spiritual secret. It is something, and you can get more and more and more spiritual secrets, secrets the more you turn your back on the world and the more you trust entrust yourself to Christ, the more he's going to entrust knowledge of salvation to you. We go now to verse 27 of Colossians 1. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery. There's make known in mystery again, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I mentioned that that was one way that mystery is used. Christ in you, the hope of glory. In can always be translated as in union with. So the mystery is Christ in union with you because his spirit lives in your spirit because you've been born again with the incorruptible seed of God. The Holy Spirit comes in, mingles with your spirit, makes you born again, creates a new man in you, just like a sperm in an egg. That's a mystery, folks. Glorious wealth of this mystery. Paul is going around teaching the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery. But he's not hiding it. He's not keeping it secret like the Gnostics did. He's spreading it around. He's making it known among the Gentiles. So Christ in us. Now, a Christ in you. It's interesting that someone, and I unfortunately didn't write down which commentator I got this from, but this commentator says that the revealed mystery was Christ in the Gentiles. In other words, the you doesn't mean in you individual Gentiles, but in you as a group of Gentiles. Salvation would be given to Gentiles as well as Jews, and that's a mystery. The commentator quotes Ephesians 3, 6. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Well, that's true. The Gentiles are co-heirs, and that was a part of the mystery. And it's true that Christ is in the Gentiles, but he's also in each individual Gentile, so we'll stick with that. Christ is in us. He gives us hope of glory. Hope is not a mere wish, but is a confident expectation of something that's going to happen in the future. What's going to happen in the future? We're going to see glory. We're going to be glorified. Glory is radiance, splendor, effulgence, coruscation. I can't think of some more synonyms. I hope that last word was right. But glory means the public manifestation of something that's wonderful. Public display of one's excellent characteristics. So we have the hope of us being displayed in, in glory as well as Christ being displayed in glory. I think here Paul's talking about our confident expectation that we will be glorified because Christ is in us. Verses 28 and 29 of Colossians 1 and will be finished. We proclaim him warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. We proclaim him warning and teaching everyone. Warning. Who could Paul be warning about? Well, it could be warning about the false teaching of the Colossian Gnostic heretics. He could be warning everyone of hell and eternal punishment, as Gill says. He could be warning of people of sin that should be avoided. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says that Paul's not really clear, but he does a lot to be warned about in the Christian faith and in life. Unfortunately, if you live in America today, we never talk about that. Now, that would be might offend somebody. Teaching everyone, that means everyone without regard to station in life, perhaps, or everyone without regard to ethnicity, whether they're Jew or Gentile. Again, that's such a big theme, and Paul always tend to think he's talking about Jew and Gentile. Teaching everyone, including Gentiles, with all wisdom. Of course, that's not natural wisdom, that's divine wisdom. The everyone could be also teaching everyone without losing even one soul to the heretics, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown says. So we teach everyone, every last person is going to be warned, and they're not going to be seduced by these damnable heretics. So that, the purpose of all this warning and teaching, 
is that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now mature, the NIV has perfect, but the word really means mature. The term was used technically in Gnosticism and in the mystery religions. When you became a possessor of all that secret gnosis, that secret knowledge, you became mature. You became perfect. Well, you don't need that secret knowledge to become mature in Christ. You just need Jesus. Now, mature doesn't mean perfectly, sinlessly perfect. Of course, it just means grown up to who you're supposed to be. You always have to be careful with that word mature or perfect. Sometimes it means 100% perfection where there's no more room for growth. Or sometimes it means you're substantially grown where you're not going to grow too much anymore. Verse 29, I labor for this. Teaching everyone is a labor, he says. Warning and teaching to present everyone mature. He's laboring for that to get Christians up to maturity, which means that warning and teaching and discipleship is labor. It's work. As someone who has done about 50,000 trillion audios in order to make a podcast, which is what I'm doing right now, I want to tell you something. It's been a lot of work. I spent over 10 years getting, doing the notes on it before we even started on the first audio. And I've been working. I've been trying to do one a day. And yeah, it's it's tiring. It's good labor. It's labor of love. It's labor where you don't get paid for it except you just like doing it because of the intrinsic value of what you're doing. So I'm not complaining. And I'm sure Paul wasn't complaining either because it's very fulfilling to warn and teach everyone with all wisdom and presenting everyone mature in Christ. That's good work. Paul says, I labor for this, striving with his strength that works. Now, when Paul says, I labor, that's one of four verses where that reformed people love to, re, to quote, to, to fight against the Keswick movement, which says, let go and let God, let him do the work. Well, fine. I mean, after we're born again, the Holy Spirit works in us and we work, we cooperate with the work, with the work of the Spirit in our lives. We have synergism, not monergism. I understand all that, and I agree we need to labor. But what does Paul always say after as soon as he says, I labor? I labor striving. I'm working. I'm working. I'm striving. What's the next thing he says? With his strength that works powerfully in me. There's the synergism right there. With his strength, Jesus is working in Paul. Here's what Adam Clark says. God worked energetically in St. Paul, and he wrought, and he wrought energetically with God. God worked energetically in St. Paul, and St. Paul wrought energetically with God. They both worked hard. I wish I had the other three verses where I don't have them off the top of my head, didn't put them in my notes. But just remember, any time that Paul says, I work, or I labor, or I strive, he always says, it's not me that's working, it's Jesus working in me. Because what did Jesus say? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm now finished with Colossians chapter 1. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 15, Paul talks about the Colossians being alive in Christ and living in Christ, walking in Christ. We'll look at that in our next audio. I hope you stay tuned for that one, and I hope you enjoyed this one. 